Hello, and welcome to another preview of a bonus episode for the Radical Thoughts podcast. In this preview, you'll hear a snippet from my discussion with Seth Wheeler, who has over 20 years of experience with the extra-parliamentary left and is the editor to the new edition of In and Against the State from Pluto Books. I hope you enjoy this discussion, and if you want to hear the full thing, you can subscribe to our Patreon for only $3 a month. What you touched on there later with the, the 2010 uh, kind of uni uni movements and stuff. Um, that's, that's been interesting to me as someone who's been going to grad school here, especially since there's another wave of, of strike actions that just took place. Um, yeah. simply because it's, it's interesting to me how ongoing these kind of struggles have been in the UK and the kind of history of people's, people's understanding of, Oh, like university having this history of being a once free kind of public good, uh, common good that has been slowly and ongoingly kind of graded. I mean, obviously you can also even go even further back and talk about, you know, 68 stuff or when I was on campus here, you know, we had to like a, a teach in and I quoted, you know, E.P. Thompson talking about, you know, Warwick University Limited and that that kind of stuff. Like it, it's been pretty interesting to me that it, it there is you know, a sense of this as an ongoing issue. Whereas in the U S it's just kind of like, no rich people go to university because it's a private <laughs> institution, even yeah, if yeah. it's a state university. So, yeah. I, 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 and I think that this is a, a interesting feature of that lets us talk maybe a bit about the book um, because in and against the state, the original version was a pamphlet from the 1970s, if I remember correctly. And it's, it's fairly interesting because it's talking mostly about workers who are in the public sector um, in a variety of ways. School is one of them, but not the only one that they talk about. Um, so it's it's in and against the state from the perspective of working in the public sector rather than necessarily being in and against the state in this more like, you know, oh, we're going to form a, a parliamentary party and we're going to work in and against the state, which I think is actually a very a very under discussed kind of way of talking about, you know, in a, in a post Fordist, very service driven world, there's a lot of work that happens through state enterprise or through state funded, you know, semi-private connections. Um, so I, I'd like to hear a little bit more, maybe if you can, about kind of your connection to this book and just what led to getting a second edition out there and, and writing an intro for it. Yeah. So, okay. So similarly, like, I, I agree with that reading of the text, right? I think there, mm -hmm. there are lots of ways of reading that text. But I think the authors themselves are pretty uh, specific in uh, in uh, um, identifying uh, what they mean by uh, revolutionary socialism. So obviously, that you know, for example, people from the Trotskyist tradition may well have a sort of in and against strategy albeit one predicated on entering into the state's disciplinary architecture so you can seize control of it in your party's interest, right? And this was certainly not of that sort of vanguardist model. I mean, basically, these were people who had come out of the sort of post-68 milieus. They were very critical of the sort of revolutionary leadership models that we were talking about earlier, that I had sort of inherited these sort of critiques of that sort of post-68 
drift away from the sort of organized communist party form. And what they were interested in doing is, I, I think, applying some of the logics of uh, the Italian workerish traditions, what their own work here. So what they recognized was that, you know, the balance of class forces being what they were at the time, that these these institutions such as the NHS or the benefit system or whatever were objective goods, like seen to be objectively good on the basis that they helped to maintain the working class and they helped to maintain at least a, mo a modicum of sort of like survival inside a very brutal capitalist system. However, they also recognized these architectures to be a product of the state containing all their own disciplinary logics. So what they were demanding, or at least trying to think through, of other militants is how can we defend these institutions from being hollowed out or marketized um, or, for, or further, you know, hollowed out, while at the same time trying to think through, through this process of inquiry with both workers and service users, alternate models of service provision um, or social reproduction, I suppose, is what we, we would now call it, um, that weren't reliant on, you know, the state or capitalism's disciplinary logic. And that's still a question that the book, I mean, they, they were unable to answer that question, right? But what, it's a proposition to the movement. It's a proposition to socialists to try and think through that contradiction. And I thought... I, the reason why I thought the book was useful to publish now or republish now was the promise of Corbynism, or at least the radical promise of Corbynism. So if we were to return to those people that I was talking about in the 2010 student movement, many, many of whom I would argue came out of the sort of contentious social movement politics that I have been part of, a lot of people identified as sort of anti-authoritarian, autonomist was a thing that was that was the, the academic but you know phrase at the time buzzword or you know had a sort of like anarcho-communist bent to them and i was sort of you know i was i was interested in thinking through how can these people have these two quite contradictory political imaginaries you know on the one hand a total rejection of the state and capital and on the other hand a desire to see a social democrat in power right and I think people saw it as an opportunity, or at least saw Corbyn as an opportunity to regroup um, a lot of very disparate struggles into a coherent, a relatively coherent political project. Um, and obviously not everybody joined the Labour Party, but a lot of those people did throw their weight behind ensuring Jeremy became leader of the party in the hope that this productive space would this encounter between the extra parliamentary left and the residual the residual old socialists inside the Labour Party could begin to maybe define and create a new politics. And I think the early period of Corbynism was really defined by that sort of exchange of those sort of ideas, right? And that's why I think it was able to appeal to a lot of younger younger voters um, who saw I think, you know, Corbyn was a bit of an empty signifier for lots of people on the left, you know, at that time. So, like, if you were an old tanky or something, you would go, oh, yeah, you know, like, he's back. If you're an old Benite, you go, oh, here he is, he's back again. And I think a similar thing was also happening on the other side of the Atlantic with Bernie Sanders and the Democratic Party, mm -hmm. where you see this big political opportunity, um, the extra parliamentary left has, you know, had has been able to maintain itself and develop all these new languages and all these new 
methodologies and um, framings to comprehend the world, but hasn't been able to necessarily exert a power into the world like um, en masse. And I think people see these opportunities to basically try and inflect and transform the politics of these older legacy institutions, the Labour Party and the Democratic Party. And obviously there's been some successes in that. And the question remains whether that was the right thing to do. I mean, obviously, you know, historians hate counterfactuals. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, we can't go back and unmake that. But I think, you know, I, I wanted to kickstart that conversation again because I think a lot of the Corbynite promise was predicated on a, a, a radical reappraisal of like how we were going to do politics and how we were going to like run the economy, um, which I don't think can just be reduced to oh it was just always going to be social democracy, right? Um, yeah. Which is which is what kept a lot of the extra parliamentary left out um, from my generation at least outside of that project. They were just immediately like this is just bullshit. It's going to go fucking nowhere. You know, this is social democracy again. Why are we all falling for it? Blah, 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 blah. And yet I think uh, that that's a total misreading of of history's movement and, and the potentialities that were, were that were there nascent, nascent underneath the sort of surface. It, it is kind of weird how how closely the like Corbyn and Sanders stuff mirrored each other to me. Um and I definitely get that sense too of, yeah, there was a lot of excitement and a lot of people suddenly felt like they had a, a real grasp on kind of like a historical moment of politics that a lot of a lot of younger people, especially, had never really sensed before in the U.S. political system, at least through the Sanders movement. I, I didn't do a whole lot in terms of campaigning or anything, but I like rhetorically in conversation or whatever. If politics came up, that's where I would place myself as behind the Sanders movement, and I would support it just through the you know the propaganda or whatever. And and it is kind of yeah, looking in hindsight, it's kind of a, a question of like what was the right sort of move because I didn't necessarily expect that he was going to single-handedly roll in and you know usher in the grand new age of, of American socialism or anything but there was this kind of hope that oh well maybe this can serve as this mobilizing effort yeah you we, we might get some better kind of like common good services and we might be able to just get people involved in a sense of like being politically engaged from a more left-wing perspective than is normal but there's on the I mean, other hand yeah i mean sorry i mean yeah i agree i mean you certainly saw that here in the uh you know like looking at america from here from the perspective <laughs> of the uk i mean when you when we go into the sort of george floyd black lives yeah. moment uh and then you know abolition for example comes back with a vengeance as a sort of like major topic of social movement uh, mobilization uh, and obviously that's, you know, that's got a long history in the US. That's, you know, like uh, 60 to 100 years of sort of conversations in in the in the black community and in the sort of like socialist left. But actually there was this unique opportunity that presented itself at that moment. What you had was sort of like, for want of a better word, DSA or at least democratic, uh, left democratic candidates in cities mm-hmm. Uh, you know, who are like either on, you know, running in local for local office or mayoral ships or whatever, who were then very seriously discussing the possibility of how would you implement at the level of policy mm-hmm. a sort of abolitionist, you know, yeah. or, or transformation. And that was, I think that's really the unique 
moment that um, that was presented to us, this sort of potential opportunity where we could like suddenly radically push the agenda forwards if there was the political will in these offices to do so, uh, in conjunction with a sort of street movement, a very sort of active street movement. And in the UK, this was always something that I think was relatively absent. I think in hindsight, I mean, there wasn't really a social movement behind Corbyn. Mm-hmm. Or to be more precise, there was a social movement behind Corbyn, but it was limited solely to sort of like the train of electoral politics. So it's like you could mobilise thousands of people to go out and knock on fucking doors to ensure that Jeremy got the vote. Mm-hmm. But could you get those people to be involved in sort of more militant forms of direct action or community organising or workplace organising? Um, that's a big question. Yeah, And I think actually if we were to look at Corbyn in some sort of parallel universe where he was able maybe to be elected in 2017, I think in hindsight, we hardly had a policy offer together, right? We had all these sort of radical ideas like four-day working week, Green New Deal, all this sort of stuff. But, you know, quite a lot of the unions were behind that at that period. Um, Would we have had the street movement who would have gone out and occupied and... You know, you know, there would have been capital flight. There would have been, you know, the, the party itself would have gone into revolt against him. Would we have had a street movement that could go out and hold uh, the bourgeoisie to account, you know, yeah. uh, hold elected officials to account? I just don't know. I really don't know. And again, I think if people are serious about a sort of in and against strategy moving forwards, these are the sort of like things that we need to consider, like how, even if we like disagree with the limits of social democracy, um, how do we mobilise our, our class, um, you know, in its best interests, whilst also trying to move beyond those politics and create space for politics that can't be captured by parliamentarianism? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that's really the, still the challenge in the present. Um because I think a lot of people are not going to leave the Labour Party or the Democratic Party after this last term. I think people have felt the possibility of power and what that would mean to exercise power. And I think, yeah, I, I can't see people leaving those projects if the extra parliamentary left doesn't have an offer that can actually yeah. affect change in much the same way. Right? Thank you for listening to this bonus episode. If you want to hear the full discussion, it is $3 a month to get onto our Patreon feed. We always appreciate it when people show support. Please feel free to like and follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and give us a decent review on the podcatcher of your choice. Our next episode will be on The Indivisible Remainder by Slavoj Žižek. Pick up a copy if you want to read along. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.